0: Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Garwood Anderson. Dr. Anderson has his Ph.D. from Marquette University and serves as the president and provost, as well as professor of New Testament at Neshota House Theological Seminary. He's an appropriate guest, given our most recent episode on the New Perspective on Paul, uh, because he's written a book that can help us navigate through some of these issues pertaining to Pauline studies uh, called Paul's New Perspective, Charting a Soteriological Journey. Dr. Anderson, how are you doing today?
1: I'm well. Thank you, Wesley.
0: Good, good. So glad to have you. So uh, most Pauline scholars, uh, when you read them on, on these topics, I guess after uh, E.P. Sanders' book, um, Fit into three major camps: uh, the traditional or old perspective, uh, the new perspective, and the apocalyptic. Could you briefly explain the contours of those positions for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with some of the finer points of the on the debate
1: about Paul? Sure. We'll we'll probably leave some of uh, the finer points for later in the discussion, but we can sketch this out kind of in broad contours. Of course, the so-called traditional. Uh, perspective uh maybe not charitably named old perspective uh is the perspective that's more or less that arose in the interpretation of Paul via the reformation and it understands uh Paul uh as a consequence of his conversion charting a new means uh, a new understanding of how humanity is made right with god it puts justification by faith uh at the center of paul's theology And, um, letters to the Galatians and to the Romans are read largely along those kind of Protestant, uh, lines, which is to say that, um, obedience to the law or works more generally will prove insufficient as a way of, of being right with God, that we are made right with God through uh, the atoning sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, which we, um, appropriate by faith not of our own works. Right. And so it's almost impossible to explain the traditional perspective without thinking immediately of a variety of Bible passages like Ephesians two, eight and nine, or Titus three, three, through seven, um, many passages in Romans and so on. Um, and that's really seen as the centering place for, for understanding Paul in his soteriology, but maybe even more, more generally. Um, so of course the new perspective comes along and says that, um, if, if we thought that the Judaism that was contemporary with Paul had, uh, believed that we were made right with God by means of a certain quantity or quality of law keeping, we've misunderstood, uh, second temple Judaism. And as you said, that's the, that's the revolution that E.B. Sanders foments. Um, in fact, uh, uh, salvation broadly understood in Judaism was always understood as a matter of grace. Um, Always a matter of God's initiative and mercy um, in making covenant with his people and the Torah observance is Judaism's faithful response to God's gracious initiative Which um, somebody might just point out is pretty much Old Testament theology anyway Um, but what Sanders and others say is that that kind of cantus firmus of theology holds true uh, in and through Second Temple Judaism with a couple of exceptions, maybe noted and so forth, so that um, whatever Paul came along and um, was arguing, can we say against or polemically, has to be reconsidered if that um, if that cipher isn't there as the the wrong view that Paul corrects, and so that's where the new perspective jumps in with a, a number of possible alternatives, um, chiefly the alternative that. When Paul is arguing for justification by faith, what he is most prominently, if not exclusive, if not exclusively addressing is the question of, um, how is it that Gentiles can become children of Abraham, um, apart from Torah observance, uh, and circumcision. And so that in that sense, he's addressing not a faulty soteriology of Judaism, as much as, as he is opening an expansive soteriology, Um, as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so, you know, roughly speaking, we might say that the traditional perspective focuses in a kind of vertical and generalized way, soteriologically, and the new perspective focuses sort of more horizontally, and we could say sociologically, in its understanding of what justification is all about. So to, to summarize, we could
0: say like a book like Galatians, uh, the traditional perspective would see the problem with the Judaizers as being they're forcing works upon the Galatian Christians to be circumcised right. to follow the dietary restrictions or whatever. Whereas the new perspective would say the real problem that Paul has is that he's trying to they're trying they're trying to make Christians
1: Jews. Yes. I think that's, you know, nicely, nicely summarized. And then of course you mentioned the third apocalyptic perspective, which really doesn't kind of fit quite into that, uh, that dialectic. Exactly. Um, it's kind of coming from a, from a sort of third space and apocalyptic interpreters of Paul, um, don't identify with either of those perspectives. They're really coming from another place. And, and what they're most importantly saying is that, um, Paul is above all concerned with the turn of the ages that comes with Christ. And, and uh the 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 gospel according to uh uh, you know about jesus according to paul is a is an apocalyptic invasion it's a new thing that signals the turn of the ages um that overcomes the the powers of darkness and death and uh opens a, a a a new age and a new world um and a new creation most especially um, to, to adherence to the Jesus, uh, the Jesus movement, right? So, um, apocalyptic interpreters of Paul are going to nuance things like justification and how important it is and what it means actually in no particular consistent way. But what they're going to say is, um, justification is more than a legal righteousness or a legal, uh, uh, um, um you know forgiveness of sins or something along those lines and it, and often you'll see these interpreters use a word like rectification so that it's a making right um and inclusive in the making right is the restoration of humanity's relationship to god but it's not the sum total of what god is doing in the in, in the in the good news of jesus
0: yeah that's helpful So um, what does the new perspective offer us that's useful? And then what are some areas where you might think it it comes up short as a sort of totalizing explanation of Paul's writing?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I I think it would always um, be a salutary thing. Whatever conclusion we might end up reaching, it's always a salutary method to sort of step out of post-Christian, you know, uh, Christian, subsequent Christian debates and to try again to look at the New Testament with fresh eyes in its own context, right? So I don't wanna say the subsequent interpretation is not important or irrelevant, but it's always a, a proper exercise to step out of it as to the extent that we can and ask, well, what's really going on here and what what was really at stake? And so, you know, going back to Christer Stendhal even before E.P. Sanders and so on, it, it was right to raise the question, um, have we too much superimposed medieval Catholicism and the Reformation debates upon the Pauline writings, right? Because historically that's the way it happened. Rediscovering Paul, um, is what not exclusively, but significantly prompts and fuels the Reformation. Um, and, and that's a, that's a profound and powerful act of theological interpretation, but asking again, is, is that actually what Paul was on or are we just actually drawing an analogy to our own context? Is it, that's just a, a good practice. So I think for starters, um, offering a more charitable and less of a mirror reading of second temple Judaism is an intrinsically good thing. So you cannot just assume that when Paul says something that we have um, an intuitive capacity, to um, restate the equal and opposite error um, that must have been true of the Judaism of his day. That 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 will um, possibly lead us towards certain kinds of mistakes. So that in and of itself is a good thing, diving back into the second temple sources um, and so forth. Um, secondly, I think the new perspective actually helps us appreciate the socio-cultural kind of on the ground issues that Um, Whether we think it's where Paul finally ended up, it is almost impossible to to deny that the Gentile mission, for example, um, seriously fuels and drives and necessitates his theological reflection. And so if we think that Paul is starting with universal categories or an anxiety uh, within himself soteriologically about whether he could be saved and whether he could ever be good enough, um, we're probably going to go down a wrong path probably better to start with him as apostle to the Gentiles, see his conversion as a call to that mission, and then ask what what kind of barriers does the New Testament bear witness to that you know, most assuredly he encountered, and then to ask, does that in some way explain where his gospel comes from and what its, if not final, at least initial target might be? And of course that's the kind of argument that I've made in the book is to say, I think that early Paul is is relatively well accounted for by some of the primary themes of the new perspective. Um, Now, in terms of where it comes up short, I I, I would say as a kind of blanket statement, I've never been persuaded that the works faith or grace works antithesis that um, uh, pervades Paul's letters has ever been satisfactorily or wholly uh, accounted for, merely by, say, James Dunn's uh, and others' uh, thoughts about what uh, Torah observance meant to uh, Paul's opponents or what it was that he was arguing against. So it seems to me that um, there are there, this f- fixed antithesis may have multiple dimensions to it, but I don't think it, 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 of course, Dunn's argument was that the works of the law speak of particular uh, socially distinguishing practices within Judaism that marked the people of God out from their contemporaries, right? So they have a profound social function, which is not to be doubted. Uh, Dunn thinks that essentially all of what Paul is saying can be accounted for. His polemic against works works of the law, and even works uh, are sufficiently accounted for as this kind of sociological argument to, to put it the way you did that that one a Gentile mustn't become a Jew to be in Abraham's family. Um, I'm not. I, I've just never been persuaded by that. Um, I find that the new perspective stumbles on, uh, for example, Romans chapter four would be sort of a classic case. I think it stumbles in, in Romans chapter nine, um, I think whatever we make of later or Pauline writings, it seems to me that there, this becomes a fixed the virtual, that antithesis becomes a fixed, almost like trope for Paul. And I don't think the new perspective has well accounted for either that as a development of of uh, authentic Paul or as the earliest reception that we have of, uh, of Paul's followers. And that's what really started leading leading me into the, the path, uh, the argument that I've made. That's great. So, um,
0: my understanding, cause I, I saw uh, Doug Moo speak a few years ago when I was still a student at Liberty and Doug Moo is one of those guys who's pretty faithful to the traditional perspective. But uh, a question was asked about the new perspective at his talk. And he basically said, even those of us who adhere to the old perspective, you know, we have embraced large portions of what the new perspective says um, mm-hmm. So now that uh, this, I guess, kind of revolution in Pauline studies has happened, especially because of Sanders' book um, and, and the subsequent works that it has inspired, what does our sort of, um, I guess, holistic understanding of Paul entail now? Um, and I know that's kind of a big question, but I guess where where can we all sort of agree, um, even though we might still have quibbles between old and new perspectives and, and things like that?
1: Yeah, wow you were right about that being a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Dr. Mu was one of my teachers back mm. in the day. And so, um, uh, I, uh, learned a lot from him. He's he, 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 is a, as you, I think you described him very well. He's, um, uh, essentially a traditional perspective, uh, scholar, but, um, not in a, not in a polemical way or in a way that, You can't hear the the larger arguments and criticisms and so forth. So um, I I do think he's exemplary in that way. Well, um, you know, what I'm going to say is um, as far as the the big picture, that, that there's a lot to the new perspective and to the old perspective that if we can get ourselves out of polemicizing and out of like columnar differences, you know, where we have to say it's not this, it's actually that. Um, there's a lot of it that is just, it's not mutually exclusive. And um, I, I, now at some points, and it really comes down to the exegesis of particular texts where sometimes your your hand is forced, like there is a choice to be made uh, at certain points. But uh, in, in, in a large larger framework, I don't think uh, so much of it is really polar. In other words, I don't need, to use one example, I don't need... To overturn the Sanders hypothesis um, at every in every possible way, um, to at the same time affirm that there is something new and different to Pauline soteriology than the Second Temple Judaism that was, you know, it were his roots. Uh, uh, so it, it doesn't have to be that kind of an all or nothing uh, thing. So, uh, here here are some things that I think essentially, you know, like we, we can pretty much all agree on Gentile mission is the beginning of Pauline theologizing. Um, that's a pretty good place to start. I don't think you have to say that it's the end of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So but it is, I think it's right to say that it's the start. We don't need a caricature of Second Temple Judaism to make. You know, to to write it in dark hues so that Paul can shine a little brighter as the Christian alternative. We don't, you know, like that's like a special effects kind of a thing that Paul doesn't need. Um, we can see him very much um, in his own time and place, and not as Martin Luther taking on um, Tetzel, right? That's doesn't ha- we don't have to do that. Um, and then you know, I think a you know big point that I'm trying to make, you know, you know if God allows, I'll, I, I will try to make it more um, robustly and formally and sometime in the future is I just think that justification, because it's been the storm center for Christian discourse soteriologically is, you know, let's just say a providential accident of history. Um, I just think it carries too much weight and we've made too much rest upon it. When Pauline soteriology is such a, bigger, conceptually bigger than justification. And so what you see people needing to do then as a result is they need, um, the sort of the traditional perspective needs justification to, in some ways, be the, the whole or the center of Pauline soteriology more generally. Um, and thus it ends up, um, I think skewing the rest of what Paul has to say about Christian hope. Uh, f- for for Christians in their in their growth and holiness and so forth it ends up doing too much work for them meanwhile the sort of um, new perspective maybe um, I think I can say Roman Catholic alternative has been to make justification I think say more or something different than I think Paul is saying by it mm-hmm. right so it, when it's finally all said and done I'm I I think that Paul's view of justification is somewhat it it, it It's a juridical metaphor for him. Mm. It's fundamentally forensic, but the mistake that is made that often follows from that is that Pauline soteriology is juridical and forensic. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is, well, that's a dimension of Pauline soteriology in a certain way. It's a kind of starting point, but it's far from the whole.
0: Yes. Yeah. Let, let's talk more about justification, because um, in the class that I took with you in uh, last January, which was wonderful and, and really, really enlightening, um, you used the metaphor that justification is like a man who has five jobs and everyone else around him is unemployed. So what exactly, uh, given what you just said, what, what exactly how does that tie into to your point about justification? How should we understand justification? Um, and then what are some of the other, I guess, major Pauline tropes um, when it comes to yeah, superiology? Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, right. Well, um, I, I, I think I do like that saying <laughs> and it, it's because you see people, um, needing justification to carry a payload that I think it's a bigger payload than it wants to carry. So I think new perspective, uh, has it carrying a certain payload, certainly the old perspective does and the apocalyptic does too. Um and then it becomes unnecessarily determinative of the whole. And I think that's where the mistake is. So of course, Pauline soteriology um includes other metaphorical fields and a and a kind of creative combination of fields that's, that's so much bigger than merely what we think dicao or dicaosis means. And that that includes uh transformative metaphors. Um, it, in, and so salvation for Paul, um, is surely about getting right with God. Uh, but it, that is hardly the whole of it, right? So it, it's a, it, it is a getting right with God. If we want to use that sort of narrow terminology by means of union with Christ and that union with Christ, uh, leads to a whole set of other, um, Benefits, including, you know, the work of the spirit, um, tr- new creation, transformation, um, <clears throat> sanctification, although I think there's some issues about how we use the terminology of sanctification, but all, all of those ideas, um, and that's also soteriology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so an, an assurance of being right with God, uh, that secures an afterlife, uh, I think is a, a Pauline dimension of soteriology and it's a small part of the whole (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and this is why I think Paul has because he's thinking largely in transformative terms um, I don't need to make justification a transformational metaphor which say like um, uh, say as Michael Gorman would I don't I don't need to do that to at the same time affirm that Paul's soteriology is profoundly transformational I just found out the other day, as a side note,
0: uh, Michael Gorman lives like five minutes from my house. Oh, really? I, yeah, I need to. I need to take him out for coffee at some point. You, if
1: That's you actually. get a chance, you should. He's one. He's a wonderful man. Yeah, and uh, somebody I, I just I deeply admire as a person and scholar. Mm-hmm. So even even when, <clears throat> even when I have minor minor differences, I yeah. I think he's 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 quite wonderful.
0: Yes, and, and in fact, you made us read one of his books for your class, which was yeah. uh, which was pretty yeah. great. Um. So one of the issues that's divided Catholic and Protestant soteriological systems, as you kind of mentioned, is is how we um, view justification when it's applied to the Christian. So obviously the Protestant emphasis is on imputation and the Catholic emphasis is on impartation. And I know you don't prefer those terms, so why not? And what's a better for, way for us to imagine um, mm-hmm. what goes on in the life of a Christian because of justification?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's going to be some easier questions coming, right? I think so. Okay. All right. All right. Fair enough. Well, again, I think those, um, those are trying to describe a mechanism by which justification, um, is accomplished. And, uh, it's, it's like, uh, this happens a lot in theology, you know, whether you're trying to talk about the real presence in the Eucharist or, uh, how, how scripture was inspired Right? Whenever, you, whenever you start moving from the affirmation to the mechanism, um, I, I'm not saying you're, you're wrong, but you're, you're in a precarious place. And I think impartation and imputation are an example of that. Um, I don't think that you can find anywhere in Paul the notion that Christ's positive righteousness is somehow imputed to or credited to us. That That's a kind of theological inference drawn. Um, which I think is actually leaves Pauline grammar for something else. So the Pauline grammar would be, uh, rather different than that, which is, and I, and here I just have to give credit to Michael Bird's um, language. I like the way that he prefers to talk about incorporated righteousness. So the Christian, uh, by faith, um, and from my perspective, by means of baptism is made incorporate with into Jesus Christ and thus the verdict that God declares upon the crucified and resurrected and thus vindicated Christ is the verdict that is rendered upon us for being in union with him. Mm -hmm. So there's not like a a commercial exchange or something that's taking place. There or something getting passed on to us quite that way. It's a, it's a consequence of something more holistic of being incorporated into Christ. So I, I strongly prefer uh that that suggestion of an incorporated, incorporated righteousness. And, and that's that is still different than the infused or imparted righteousness that Roman Catholicism speaks of, whereby um some an, an effective righteousness that makes us actually uh uh lived uh righteous people. Uh, becomes the definition of justification. I just don't think Paul um, has anything like that in mind, even though he fully would agree that we live in the fruit of righteousness Mm -hmm. or with the fruits of righteousness. So there's a consequence to our justification, um, but it's not justification itself. And this is where I think the traditional Roman Catholic view gets it wrong. And when I say traditional, I mean, I'm acknowledging, that, you know, many, most, many, maybe most contemporary Roman Catholics, um, eschew that language or, or greatly qualify it. So yeah, imputation and impartation, I think neither of them are the best way to think about that. Incorporation is a, is a wonderful, uh, integrative, uh, metaphor that is just true to what Paul is saying, uh, as he, as he speaks about what is, what is happening, to the human being who becomes member of Christ.
0: Yeah, uh, kind of a follow up, and maybe hopefully this will be one of the easier ones. Um, you mentioned baptism being kind of the locus for um, for that union that happens between the person and Christ. Um, you know, as an Anglican Anglo-Catholic priest, and we've talked about this on our podcast before. You know, we're very we're very high on the sacraments and baptism, and we would absolutely agree with that description. So then how do you answer people who would hold up Romans 4, you know, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, um, as kind of an, I guess, an answer to that argument, that mm-hmm. baptism is the place? It's like it's like pitting Romans 4 against Romans 6. But obviously mm-hmm. that's not the way that we're supposed to read the letter. Um, right. So what should we kind of work those two out?
1: Yeah, well, Wesley, I mean, that's, you gave, that's the answer. That's the brilliant answer, <laughs> right? So whatever whatever it means that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, it has to cohere with, um, we, you've therefore died with Christ, Mm -hmm. uh, in baptism and have been raised to newness of life, Romans six, Romans seven and so forth. So, um, we, we we need to be really careful of any way of reading any letter, but Romans especially where we end up, um, pitting sort of one part against another. And, you know, I think for what it's worth, I think Doug Campbell's, book, Deliverance of God is either the best or the worst example of what happens when you do that, because, you know, Campbell has to say that he can't see how say Romans five through eight can be coherent with Romans one through four understood a certain way. And so he has to uh, introduce um, an interlocutor an impersonator who is actually giving the opposite of Paul's view for uh, a large swath of the, of the opening gamut of Romans only to be sort of corrected later. Uh, you know, uh, that's super creative, but in a way it's just, it's too beholden to too narrow view, a uh, too narrow, not even truly reformational view of Romans one through four or five. So, So I think you've you've given the answer there that when uh, push comes to shove for Paul, um, he repeatedly adverts to baptism as the thing, (laughs) as the ritualized moment of conversion and the ritualized marking of that union with Christ, whence derive all the other soteriological benefits. Mm. But he doesn't he does he, he would never pit. Baptism over against faith, that would be truly bizarre. But a consequence of a kind of hyper Reformational view of this, which is anti-Reformation, but sort of hyper-Reformation view, is you know you're in trouble when you start to see uh, a Christian sacrament like work like baptism as uh, analogous to a work of the law. Right now, now you know you you you've just left the tracks. <laughs> Because when Paul in his polemical argument against works of the law finishes it off, baptism is the alternative to works of the law, not an example of a work of the law. So, uh, that, that, that kind of reasoning will get you into all kinds of trouble. And, and you know, both of us are well aware of, of very well meaning Christians who are so anxious about the, the prospect that anything a human being could do, even even passively receiving a sacrament could be a part of their salvation, that they'll go to to, to great lengths to misread Paul in their support, yes. you know, to gain his support.
0: I always say that's one of the reasons why infant baptism makes so much sense to me is because it, it is a um, kind of picture of that, that it's yeah. not a work. The baby does yeah. absolutely nothing um, yeah. in order to be baptized. So, uh, anyways,
1: yeah. um, and of course so, there are other there are other moving parts there. But I, I think an, a really good place to start is when Paul makes his argument about how Gentiles are incorporated into the family of Abraham. Um, his answer is not circumcision but baptism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, start there and work from there. <laughs> right. and and i think you're going to be on
0: the right track yes absolutely absolutely so another important issue in paul is the phrase pistis Christo, which has been translated either as an objective genitive so it can be translated as faith in christ or a subjective genitive the faithfulness of christ and uh you know this would seem like a a kind of inconsequential semantic issue, except that it happens in really important places in the Pauline Corpus, Romans three, Galatians two and three, Philippians three, Ephesians three. Um, so how should we, uh, and I, this might be another hard one. How should we understand that phrase?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. It's been a, that's really been a, a a storm center. I'm going to say, I think it's an overblown storm center. Um, and, and I say that for this reason, um, those passages however you take them um, do not disprove the opposite conceptual notion right so if i take that as a subjective genitive faithfulness exercised by christ um, i still have too many pauline passages in which christ is the object of faith so in a way it's really just what am i doing with those passages because I'm never, I will, I'll never escape for Paul the notion that faith, the, that Christ is an object of faith, and that that is soteriologically significant. Now, significant. Now, you might say, well, but you know, you have this sort of rich theological idea of um, of Christ pioneering faithfulness on our behalf, and so on. And and I, I like uh, the subjective genitive uh, theologically. I'm not actually finally grammatically convinced by it. And so what I what I have argued, and uh, I, I, I thought maybe it was a novel idea, but I came across a few other people who have more or less argued this, is that the objective, subjective, genitive distinction has literally, almost literally, polarized the debate unnecessarily. When we're well aware that genitives have more functions than objective and subjective, mm-hmm. and so I have suggested that it's a descriptive, or qualitative, or defining, or semitic. Genitive, which is to say, not just faith in some sort of general sense, but faith that, as uh, determined by and focused upon Christ. Mm. So my translation would be something like "pistis Christu means Christian faith, mm. not not just not just faith in uh, God in some general sense, but in the context, you know, starting with Galatians, where he's talking about faith that justifies. It is faith that is focused on Christ and his work. And so if anything, it's a little closer to the objective genitive but but I'm not describing it i'm I'm describing it as a descriptive mm. or we could even say a Semitic genitive, something like that. yeah so, think of like a, a think of a you know a, a promise of mercy mm. mm-hmm. right uh, which you'll know from the canticles. <laughs> that's right. Uh, a promise of what is a promise of mercy? Well, it's certainly not a subjective genitive. Mercy isn't doing the promising. It's not an objective genitive. It's not that you're promising mercy exactly. It's a promise that's characterized by mercy. Right. Right. And 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 it, given its Semitic roots and so forth, I think the New Testament has a lot, a lot of those sorts of genitives, and the objective-subjective divide is probably not is it ends up in the dead end that it is yeah i don't know if anyone will agree with me on that i mean i I don't know if we'll we'll start a new uh movement on that one people seem to like to have the two alternatives and go back and forth Uh, but i think that that actually escapes it gives you a little bit of both but it escapes the the basic polarity and and in a way that i think is grammatically honest
0: yes Um, Well, it is kind of a common tendency in Pauline debates that
1: people prefer one poll over the other. So, yes, you're probably. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that's helpful. Yeah. In a way, that's kind of the starting point for what I've tried to do, which is to say uh, these are all really smart people. And uh, for by and large, people of goodwill. Mm -hmm. And I'm just having a hard time believing that they're all completely wrong.
0: Right. (laughs) Right. Actually, I would be interested to talk a little bit more about your book specifically, because I think it's a really helpful way of navigating the debates. Um, and in fact, one theologian that we haven't talked about, surprisingly, whose name hasn't come up so far is Inti Wright. And mm-hmm. you have a lot of good things to say about N.T. Wright in the book, obviously, but you do have a critique of him that's kind of a methodological one. And Mm -hmm. I think it helps us kind of understand what you're doing in your book a little bit, um, because your critique is that he treats the Pauline corpus as a single source. um, And you spend a good deal in your book charting Paul's soteriological journey. So Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing the development of his thought over the course of his ministry. So how do you use that framework to sort of propose a a via media between the traditional perspective (laughs) and perspective? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so... um, this, you know anything that Tom Wright does he does so well mm-hmm. especially rhetorically that uh, even if you think he's wrong you don't want to disagree right right and um, so and I you know I considered him a pioneer and a hero and somebody I just as a scholar and otherwise really look up to so I disagree with him when I do just sort of uh warily <laughs> yeah. because i've learned so much from him and it'd be very clear to anybody who heard me try to do some of these things so yeah i think you put it really well for I, I see for right when he works out his themes because he works them out uh theologically and conceptually and not not in developmentally i he, he treats paul relatively synchronically mm-hmm. So you have a a Pauline corpus and you can move fairly easily from one text to another and see mutual mutually reinforcing claims. um, So that what he says in one place um, is reinforced by what he, what he says in another place, irrespective of how they might be related chronologically and so forth. And yeah, it just occurred to me when I was reading um, him and I've read, you know, I think everything he's written on ball, this this happens a lot, and and I wonder if um, if in a way Wright's brilliance as a synthesizer doesn't end up taking center stage for a kind of um, you know it's his rhetorical brilliance, but then methodologically there's not as much discipline to that, um, and and if he doesn't become Paul's sort of he's, he's Paul's Luther right like a great synthesizer. Um, and he sees themes, you know, of course, Covenant and um, and so on, um, uh, Messianism. And he sees these themes and he, and he works them out through Paul's letters that way. So I think that would be my, that, that is, you, you, you got it right, that is my primary critique. Um, and then I, I do think that, um, I do think he gives short shrift to Pauline's uh, uh, emphasis on things like reconciliation and so on which is ironic because he structured his, his last big book around that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it actually influences the way that he sees justification in, in, in the book itself. And so anyway, I, those are a, a few of my concerns. Probably the biggest one is actually ends up being rhetorical, which is that um, you know, Wright has been highly successful largely because he's been so good at saying it's not about this, it's actually about this. Like that is, that is the structure of a Tom Wright argument. (laughs) And, and, and he does it so deftly that I think people are taken along for the ride. When I think, uh, with a little reflection, often the, probably the truer thing to say is it's not only about this, but it's also about this, Mm -hmm. or, um, it is not primarily about this, but, um, it actually starts here or so on. Right. And, uh, so, so I think this has made him, um, really effective and it's made him a great discussion starter. Yes. But sometimes I think devotees, uh, his devotees, um, are are taken in and believe the rhetoric and not just, uh, and not are, are content with just the arguments. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. So a lot of our listeners are, um, Primarily ministers, uh, I think, or at least a good chunk of them are um, some lay people and a lot of ministers. But um, so, what are some helpful guidelines for us as we're preaching from the Apostle Paul? Because uh, you know, if it was up to me, I would probably just for the sake of convenience try and avoid Paul. But the lectionary doesn't really let us do oh. that. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so what? How? What? Sh- what are some things we should remember when we're sitting down to write a sermon, but based on a Pauline text?
1: Right. Wow, that's great. So. Uh, one thing I would say is um, a preacher and Christian leader has a ri- has a responsibility um, when it's necessary to rehabilitate a-, a fully canonical view of Holy Scripture. And we're as it concerns Paul, um, especially in in some mainline and sometimes sacramental churches, uh, Paul gets short shrift because the Paul that they people think they don't like, Is kind of a caricature and so overcoming those caricatures, I think is a is a noble undertaking for a preacher And and so that I would just start there to start with the realization that when you get into Paul um You're dealing with a certain amount of communication noise That's in the air some static because people have maybe have a preconceived idea of who he is or what he's about And uh, that's where I have found, like, uh, somebody like Michael Gorman again gives a a kind of fresh and appealing view. And, you know, Paul doesn't totally need our help or anything like that. But our people need help (laughs) in not setting aside something that is God's canonical gift to them. So that would be one thing. Uh, Preach Paul, um, I I would say, enthusiastically, affirmatively, um, uh, and demonstrating his coherence with the Lord Christ and yes. uh, rather than as an alternative to or a, a, a degeneration from. Mm. Okay. So that, that would be one thing. And then I think the other thing is trying to get, because so much of what Paul offers is um, at, at its base is soteriological. Uh, and so much of that is more than justification. I think trying to help people get into the sweep of, the, uh, of Paul's pneumatic anthropology, which is to say Paul's pessimism about human beings outside of Christ is palpable and unique to his era, but his hope for Christians as new creations uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit um, is also unique in his era. <laughs> um, and I, I think preaching Paul to produce the sort of hope in God, and and to reinforce the desire uh, that God has for us in our transformation in Christ, w- it, it would be an, a, a noble thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I guess I probably have a lot of thoughts about this, but they don't seem to be very organized.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you did miss an obvious one, which is that people should buy your book, and then whatever text is being <laughs> no. read, just look it up. No. Like that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think they should. I mean, it'd be fine if they want to. I, I think the book is a bit of an experiment. Yeah. And so that's for people that are interested in the question, I hope they would be willing to take a ride with the experiment. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not a very definitive kind of thing, yeah. you know? So one of the, one of the issues with the book, and this is exactly what I expected is if you're going to argue for development, then you have to presume a, or argue for a chronology and a corpus. So the historical critical questions occupy quite a bit of the book to set the stage for the actual argument. And all I need is for somebody to say, yeah, you've got these, uh, you have this Pauline chronology wrong. Your argument is, is baloney, right? right. Um, so it doesn't, the book has to be a little bit of a thought experiment. And what I'm trying to do is to say, well, let's say you don't buy the authenticity of this Pauline letter. Could you still run with this for a while and see that actually if this is a development of Paul, um it's it's coherent with what came before and has a continuity with it, but it's a developing continuity. Maybe you want to rethink the authenticity question in light of something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: That's helpful. Are you
0: um are you working on any upcoming projects in all your free time, which I know you have a bunch of?
1: Yeah, no, my <laughs> my upcoming project is Nishota House Seminary. Yeah and, uh, our, our fulfillment of our mission. So I have, uh, I only have kind of smaller little, um, writing projects usually as assigned. Uh, so, um, you know, a couple of, uh, reference work, sorts of things, but, um, you know, the sabbatical will come someday, uh, when the, when the, the, in in the fullness of time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, uh, I do, would really like to write something that's almost kind of a sequel and very much along the lines of the class that you took, which is to take a a higher altitude view of uh, Pauline soteriology and to speak, especially to the questions that aren't justification Um, and to weave that into Paul's larger um, communal and ethical vision. Mm. Um, But under the theme of soteriology, because I fear too much uh, Pauline scholarship uh, stops short in its soteriology with justification and then moves on to ethics. Right. Like ethics is something else. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm persuaded that that that's even like the wrong label by and large.
0: Well, that's great. Well, uh, we come to the point of the interview where we ask a modified ten questions from inside the actor's studio. So uh, you can uh, briefly explain um, an answer if if you need to, but we try and keep it kind of like a lightning round. So, uh,
1: okay. are you ready? Okay.
0: All right. What's your favorite word?
1: Uh, I would say ubiquitous.
0: Ooh, that's a good one.
1: What's your least? I favorite see it word? everywhere. I see that word everywhere.
0: <laughs> Of course, mm. Uh what's your least favorite word? Moist. Oh, yes, you're right about that., uh, what turns you on creatively or spiritually?
1: Uh, aesthetics. Mm-hmm. so um, and especially music. What kind of music? Well, I'm a traditionalist i I the classical music and particularly the English choral tradition is um works deep in my soul
0: beautiful what turns you off creatively or spiritually
1: um i I would use the word i don't know if i coined it but orthopathos, which is um being made believing that there's a right way to feel Mm. and being manipulated into certain feelings Gotcha. so spiritually and in worship I, i i i resist that Not that I don't have feelings.
0: Right, right, right. (laughs) Of course. Uh, What sound do you love?
1: Again, uh, music uh, as far as human produced sounds and um, the sound of a a forest or nature. Mm -hmm.
0: What sound do you hate?
1: Um, Anything that squeaks, squeaks Mm. or scratches uh, chalk. Yes.
0: What's, uh, what's your favorite novel that's not a super obvious answer, by which I mean like uh, no C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien or something like that, that everyone always says?
1: Yeah, I'm a little worried that this might fall into that, but uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, because I, I know it's very popular, yeah. but I find, that, I find that very deeply affecting. Yes, that is a good novel. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Uh, I'm not qualified for much. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, this, is, this is just closely related, but um, I, I've never lost. Uh, I, I was in campus ministry for a long time. So um, doing something that is um, Christian ministry to the university holistically would be the other thing.
0: Yeah. What profession would you most not like to do?
1: Um, <clears throat> uh, I don't want to say manual labor, but I guess I don't want to do it six days a week. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, probably moving, probably being a mover.
0: Oof. When yeah. we moved up here, we hired a moving company. Yeah. And I so bad for those guys.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I admire them, but probably a mover. Yeah. Probably the other thing would be um, not... Nah, Let's just stick with the mover. Okay, gotcha.
0: If heaven exists, and we're pretty sure that it does, but if it if it exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: Yeah, it's hard to um, it's hard to avoid the one that we're all been led to hope for, which is well done, mm-hmm. good and faithful servant. Um, it's, I I I I I thought about this. I can't think of a better one than than that. What about I, you, I think if, I of could of be, if, if the Lord could be more specific, it would be you, you were faithful to what I gave you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great.
0: Well, uh, now uh, the last thing that we always do is we talk about one thing that we're kind of into lately. So it can be anything. It can be a TV show, a movie, music, a book, an experience or whatever that you may have been into lately. So is there anything uh, that you've been kind of
1: willing to confess?
0: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, willing to give that. Yeah, Uh, this is going to seem like a commercial, but it's not. Um, You know, we hired a new church music professor at Neshoda House, Mm -hmm. and uh, he's founder of a uh, of a four man Renaissance singing group uh, called New York Polyphony, and they're they're extraordinary. A couple of their CDs are Grammy nominated, and so on. And I've really I've been listening to their CDs, and it's uh, just spectacular, uh, gorgeous, um, gorgeous singing and and uh, uh, literature that I don't music literature that I don't know as well. Hmm. So that's been one of the things that I've been into. And I'll I'll, I'll confess that the the uh, TV series uh, Succession okay. has, uh, and and I say that acknowledging there's um there's some contemptible um content in it uh which if you're you know you can just take an augustinian take and say it's a illustrative of the depravity of man there you go and and so it's it's spiritually somehow useful
0: (laughs) that's right it's yeah
1: didactic but it's it, it it's good drama
0: good 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 for me i've been into uh saint anselm lately been reading a lot of his writings and his prayers, partly because I took uh, the Lectio Divina class with Dr. Borsma, and we had to read some, And uh, but just mm. in my spare time, I've been reading him devotionally, and just find him to be—in uh, fact, in class, we talked about how John Cassian was is a sort of a theologian of glory, and then Anselm is sort of a theologian of the cross, and so uh. I really appreciate a lot of what Anselm does. Uh. His prayers are absolutely beautiful. His one to St. Paul is actually— uh, pretty phenomenal, and one of his longest prayers, which I think is interesting, because in modern Roman Catholic piety, uh, there's virtually no uh, Pauline devotion. Um, uh, but he's got uh, this beautiful long prayer to Paul that's that's really... That's funny. great.
1: That's great. You, you need to offline send me um, references. Yeah. I would really... I, I would appreciate that. So I'd say I watch a TV show and you read St. Anselm.
0: We we have an ongoing joke in this segment where one week I'll say something like, I've been really into Stranger Things. And the other host, Father Miles, will say, well, I've been really into being a dad lately. And It's like, ah, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, fair enough. Yeah, the, the, the other ancient author um, actually came out of um, the class that you were in. You remember Susan Eastman's book and that she had a long section on Epictetus. Yes. And uh stoicism. So um I, I I've been reading Epictetus and um I find it um, very rewarding. Yes. Yeah.
0: He came up in uh in John Bear's class on Origin too. Yeah uh, because uh um origin was responding to arguments that scripture is poorly written compared to Greek philosophy. Oh yeah. He says, Yeah, Plato may be Prettier, but he didn't have the kind of influence on the common man that a simpler person like Epictetus had.
1: Uh, that's 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 great. I I um uh, I don't I didn't know that. That's really fun. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, listeners, be sure to check out Dr. Anderson's book, uh, Paul's New Perspective: Charting a Soteriological Journey. Uh, buy it, read it, cite it in your research papers. Um, and also, this would be a good time to plug to House Theological Seminary. So if you're out there and you want to continue your education theologically, um, you know, I, I've, I'm in the STM program, and I've been doing it for about a year now, and it is excellent. Um, so if you, but if you need an MDiv or um, other degrees, it's, it's really a wonderful place to be formed in the Anglican tradition and a lot of really great faculty. So um, check that out as well. And if you like what we're doing here at The Sacramentalist, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, share us with your friends. You can email us uh, with feedback or show ideas at sacramentalists at gmail.com. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God, and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, be amongst you and remain with you always,